0: Well good morning everyone my name is Amy and I'm one of the pastors at Incarnation and this is actually a re-recording of the sermon that I preached yesterday at church. Uh, it's something corrupted that recording's file and so we needed to redo it just in case you're wondering where the song and the wind and the outdoor noises are coming from. I thought I would record this in my backyard just to remind us of all those Sundays that we worshipped outside last year under the canopies. Well, next week, I'm going to see my family up in Northern California. My parents live up in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada, and it's beautiful out there. And one of the things that I love about going is that there are places where you can see these faint petroglyphs on the faces of the rocks, these ancient symbols that were hammered into the stone by the Washoe people thousands and thousands of years ago. The petroglyphs were made long before the birth of Jesus, long before even the most recent Ice Age. They were probably made around the time of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And in the same places where you can see those petroglyphs in the stone, you can also see remnants of a more recent history. You can see these forests full of thousand-year-old redwoods, which are recent compared to those petroglyphs. You can see places where the ground is marked by these deep, permanent wagon ruts. You can see abandoned train tunnels and forgotten mine shafts. The history of that place just feels thick and palpable. There is layer on layer on layer of human memory. And sometimes Christians talk about this idea of thin places. It's an idea from Celtic spirituality, the idea of places where the veil between heaven and earth is especially thin. Places where it's easy to imagine God and the angels and the heavens are right within reach. When I think of thin places, I picture some windswept Scottish plain where you feel like you could reach out and touch heaven. But I wonder if more often God comes to us in what feel like thick places. Places more like I was just describing where all those layers of the human story just feel really thickly compacted together. Those layers of life and death and flesh and blood and toil over century and century and century. Places where human history is so thick It's actually kind of hard to imagine that God is there and real and trustworthy. Jesus was born into a thick place. He was born in the fullness of time, the scripture says, a place so thickly layered with promise and deliverance and disappointment and exile and empire. This is where Jesus grows up. This is where he begins to heal and to teach. And this is where, near the end of his life, as we heard in our gospel reading, Jesus stands over the beloved city of his people, a city thick with memory, and he cries out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus' words here cut through the thickness of human rejection to beckon his people home. But today I'm not going to focus on that gospel text. I'm going to focus on Genesis 15, what Logan read. This is the origin story of the people and place that Jesus is lamenting. It's the story that the earliest Christians looked back to again and again as they tried to understand the meaning of Jesus' death. And it's about as thick a story as they come, so ancient, so deep and mysterious and primitive that we feel in it all the layers of history between ourselves and Abram. And it's a story that begins in the dark of night with an old man who's waiting for God's promise. Back in Genesis 12, God had called Abram to leave his family and his homeland and to go somewhere unknown, somewhere God would show him eventually. And God had promised to give him land and descendants to make this one nomad into a great people. And he had promised that one day all the people of the earth would be blessed. But there was a problem. Abram and his wife were old and she was barren. And sending them out to wander far from home sent them far from the protection of their kinspeople. They were vulnerable and barren in a hostile world. And the promise of God seemed really far away. But it's here that the word of the Lord comes in a vision in chapter 15 and says to Abram, Do not be afraid. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. These words sound kind of ridiculous in a hostile and barren world where there is so much to be afraid of and so little evidence of God's reward. So Abram says that. He argues with God. He says, How can I trust you? I've been waiting for this great reward you promised me, land and descendants and blessing and all of it, but I still don't even have a child of my own. And this is basically the story of the people of God all through the scriptures. God has promised something good that is a long way off. What will his people do as they wait for it? How will they hold on to hope? How will they trust the hidden work of God? And then in this particular iteration of the story, God repeats his promise to Abram. He tells him again, he will have a child of his own. And this time, as he makes the promise, God also gives Abram a sign to go with it. He invites Abram out of his tent and he shows him a sky thick with stars. He invites him to count them if he can. And then God repeats the promise so simply. He says, so shall your descendants be. It's a beautiful moment, but it's not a terribly persuasive argument. There's no proof in those stars that God will give Abram a son. Sarai is still barren. The world is still hostile. Their future is still extremely vulnerable. And uncertain. And yet somehow, under that desert sky, somehow Abram trusts God. Abram's trust seems to spring up out of nowhere. It is pure divine gift. It's something as new and miraculous as each star that God has called into being. God doesn't move Abram from doubt to trust by giving him proofs or arguments or new data. He doesn't try to coerce him. He doesn't manipulate him into trust. All he does is reveal himself and the vastness of what he has made, his power and his beauty. And in beholding this revelation, he enables Abram to trust. And then the text says even more, it says that God reckons this trust as righteousness. God says that Abram, the one who trusts, is righteous. He is well-pleasing in God's sight. He is right with God. He is what humans were always created to be. He is righteous. And this passage, this moment, gives us a picture of human righteousness that is utterly fresh. At this point in human history, in human religion, it is something completely unheard of. There is nothing like this in the world at this time. And there never has been through all of Abram's pagan ancestors and all the peoples of the world. Because here for the first time, We see righteousness not as upholding a particular system, not controlling any particular idols or rituals, not living in fear of doing the wrong thing in the wrong way. Now we see righteousness is trusting God's future even when it's far off, even when the present is barren and hostile. Righteousness is receiving and trusting God's words. Don't be afraid. I am your shield. Your reward will be good. Righteousness is simply trusting God. God has enabled Abram to trust him and he has called that trust righteousness. And then this is where the story takes a strange turn. It gets really thick here. As the sun comes up and it dispels the stars, God gives Abram a ritual to perform. He tells Abram to bring a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And Abram does, he brings these animals and then he cuts them in half and he spreads those halves on the ground to create this sort of passageway through the center of the dead animal's bodies. This is really hot and hard and bloody and smelly work for an old man. And as the day wears on, these vultures start to swoop down and try to eat the carcasses while Abram works, but he keeps driving them away. The scene is set here for an ancient ceremony that would seal a covenant between two parties. It's why the Hebrew verb for to make a covenant is actually to cut a covenant. Because in the ancient mind, a covenant was not words you say or promises you make or nice ideas that you all agree on. A covenant was an animal you split in half. It was a pledge you make to walk your own body through blood. And the parties in this covenant would both walk between the cut halves of these dead animals as a way of saying to each other, if I don't keep my end of the deal, let it be to me as these animals, let me be killed. And if there was a big difference in the status between the two parties, if one had much higher status or wealth or power or whatever, then only the weaker one would have to pass through the carcasses and take that pledge to die. The setting and the anticipation here is so thick. Abram has done all the work to prepare for this covenant ritual, but then what happens next? As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Darkness has fallen, vultures are swooping, the stench of death is in the air, terror is all around, and Abram, the weaker party in this covenant, has fallen asleep. He can do nothing. He does nothing. And it's here, here the presence of the living God appears in smoke and flame and passes through the bloody carcasses. It's here when everything looks so barren and dark and bleak and thick that God descends, that God makes himself the weaker party, that God binds himself to humanity in this promise of blessing and pledges that he will die to uphold it. The living God passes through the valley of the shadow of death in our place, And he does it while we sleep. Well, we know how the story goes from here. We know how the human story only gets thicker from here. We read the news, we gather to pray, and it feels like the vultures are still swooping, like the darkness is still deep and terrifying. From Abram until now, thousands of years and layer upon layer, Of politics and war and viruses and human failure and frailty and evil and indifference are all piled up. Our human history is so thick. But God descends to us right here and keeps his promises and dies. God defeats death on the cross and God unleashes new creation with his resurrection. And so now, as always, he invites us simply to trust him, to become what we were always made to be, righteous. He invites us to trust his promised future of a world set right, even when it's far off, even when our present feels barren and hostile and vulnerable. He comes to us in his great love and his voice cuts through all the thickness. Do not fear. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great.